Law and Disorder, the podcast that gets real with addiction, recovery, and everything in between. Here, the 360 degrees with your hosts, Tim, Disorder, and Joe, Law, with guest speakers specializing in every field related to why you just tuned in. Welcome to Law and Disorder. And remember, recovery is possible. Tim and Joe, it's all yours. Okay, I'm starting. My name is Tim Gilbraith. I'm a gratefully recovering heroin addict who currently lives in Lapeer, Michigan. I was born in Detroit, Michigan. I would say at this point in my life, I just kind of consider southeastern Michigan to be all of my home because I bounce around quite a bit. Um, The majority of my drug use was centered around Flint. Uh, Unfortunately, in the last 10 years, I spent more days than not high on heroin or crack, usually both. It's been a long road. I feel like for the first time in my life, I really don't want to use anymore. Part of staying sober in my uh, relatively short experience, I'm depending how you want to look at it and we can get more into it, I'd say I'm comfortably seven months clean at this point. But part of my uh, growth is involved, just getting involved with uh, recovery wherever it presents itself. I go to meetings. I am a uh, board member in the local Families Against Narcotics chapter. I write a column for a newspaper in Imlay City. I'm just doing whatever I can. So when this podcast presented itself, I thought it was an opportunity for me to try to connect with people and just continue my own growth. And if I can help someone along the way, that's great. Uh, One of the things for me that makes it Kind of exciting is the fact that I'll get to do it with Joe. And Joe will introduce himself in just a minute. Joe is in law enforcement. So there's a possibility uh, one day in the past, not too long ago, I saw Joe and went the other way. Because I had something that uh, I shouldn't have had. Um, It'll be interesting for me to hear just kind of his perspective on that. But at the same time... Uh, hopefully we'll be able to introduce perspectives besides our own. I'll bring uh, family members and uh, just people I meet along the way. We'll talk to therapists. Hopefully there'll be a lot of different people with different viewpoints that'll get involved as we move forward. Um, I would say just to kind of sum up this introduction is that uh, recovery is possible. I've seen it. I've seen it. Um, And so many people, And I'm beginning to see it in myself. So if you have a loved one out there who's struggling with addiction, don't give up. If you're struggling with addiction, don't give up. There is help out there. It's uh, the disease of addiction, if you will, is not as stigmatized as it used to be. So in my opinion, there's no shame in it. It's something that a lot of people struggle with. Hopefully, Joe and I will be able to do our part just to kind of serve the community in a uh, creative way that uh, will be entertaining. My name is Joe Davis. Uh, I do work in law enforcement, but um, I'm also a board member of the local Families Against Narcotics chapter. Um, Since I bought the coffee today, Tim had to go first. Um, But really the reason uh, Tim went first is because his story is a little more more exciting than mine. 
Um, he can speak from his perspective, which is probably more or less what everybody's going to want to hear. He's been a big part of fan um, recently, and getting his story out there is going to help others. Um, my perspective, uh, I do a lot of the programming in the jail. One of our big programs is the Vivitrol program. I'd like to probably start out with saying the biggest perspective that I bring to this uh, would be I see the whole process. I see how people fighting addiction start out uh, getting in trouble. Uh, they may get arrested for driving under the influence, uh, maybe a small possession charge. Um, they end up in jail for a night or two, and then it just kind of snowballs from there. Um, they get out and they get right back to it so now they're missing court dates so they get warrants issued for failure to appear those bonds are usually pretty high so once they're back in jail that's when mom dad spouses brothers sisters friends show up and they actually see why they're incarcerated it's usually a huge eye-opener it's a shock the first thing is what did i do wrong and that's where i come in and have to explain to them it's nothing they specifically did wrong it's 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 just as tim's gonna touch on it's the addiction it's a disease once the person starts that journey um down the wrong road it's a tunnel vision and and like i said i can't speak from that perspective but what i can speak of is the different treatment plans that are out there um the manipulation that i see the enabling that i see Top to bottom, I think you're going to get both perspectives that are going to help you understand how this has evolved into, it's not such a, oh no, someone's addicted to this or addicted to that, don't tell anybody. I always like to say, once you start that road to recovery, <clears throat> it's a pride thing as well. And that, that requires a person to say, okay, I, I, I burn a lot of bridges. Um, I lied to family, I stole from family. In order to get over that and rebuild those bridges, you have to accept the fact that, yeah, yeah, there was mistakes made, but why were they made? What was the underlying issue, which is addiction? So when you start that road to recovery, and let's, let's not uh, try to fool anyone, uh, we see it all the time, someone will, will say get caught, either by law enforcement, family, friends, whatever, and then they'll say or do whatever initially to kind of bypass that whole situation. Like, yeah, I'm going to get help. I'm, I'm, I want help. And unfortunately, if they haven't detoxed, chances are pretty slim that they're going to go uh, forward with any kind of therapy or, or rehab, uh, counseling, anything. It's just not, it's just not there. Um, the disease has a tunnel vision embedded in their brains and i guess that's the best way to put it so uh yeah we'll get back to tim here um when you uh why don't you tell us a little bit how you initially started with drugs which initiated that whole addiction the uh first time i ever used i i was smoking marijuana this was in st Clair shores michigan i was a freshman in high school i did it because the kids I grew up with did it. I wasn't trying to fit in with a new crowd. I wasn't trying to be popular. I wasn't trying to be cool. I just didn't want to lose the friends that I had had my entire life, which I felt them slipping away. They began with cigarettes, and I wasn't interested in 
and smoking those with them. I saw them have a few drinks and I didn't choose to partake in that either. But one day I was passed a joint and I took to that like a fish to water. Years later, they're all doing well in their professional family lives, and I've struggled with drug addiction ever since. Within weeks of that first joint, I was a daily pot smoker. Before my 15th birthday, I had an everyday habit. The school I went to was really lax in terms of attendance. If you skipped a class, all they did was give you a tardy. You had so many tardies per quarter or whatever it was, so I was in and out of school all day getting high. Uh, In short order, I was drinking, I was taking LSD, Uh, all of that I definitely did before my 16th birthday, if not my 15th birthday. Uh, It was years before I got into opiates that happened in my early 20s, but just the marijuana and the alcohol alone uh, occupied the majority of my time for the next decade. When I first picked up that first joint, I would say, man, 75% of the the time I was I was higher drunk from that moment forward. I do think marijuana is a gateway drug. I also think it's great for some people. I don't I don't begrudge anybody their their marijuana use, their drinking. Anybody can do what they want to do, and if they can manage their lives, be happy and responsible, good for them. But I couldn't. The the simplest drugs I, I can't handle. So it's uh, it's been a long journey. I'm 40 years old now, and the entirety, of me, the entirety of my adult life has been compromised at the very least by substance abuse issues, if not just outright destroyed. So with uh, the whole marijuana thing, I, I know it's being legalized uh, both medically and recreational pretty much throughout the country here. My personal opinion is on the medical side, I can understand I'm not going to lie if I'm dying of cancer and that marijuana is going to make me feel better. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. Um, on the flip side, I grew up with uh, two uncles. Uh, one was an alcoholic and a very, very heavy pot smoker. My other uncle, straight out of the gate, was a heroin addict. So I grew up watching both of them um, deteriorate. I watched it control their lives. Watched my my grandma ask my alcoholic slash pothead uncle to go down to the corner store, which was literally a quarter mile, if that, to get some milk, and he'd come back with some Wonder Bread. And as a young kid, I seen this, and I was like, uh, "That's not what I want to be." So I seen the addiction in my family. I knew I was at risk. Tim mentioned with his friends, he didn't want to lose touch with his friends. Um, it kind of falls under uh, the peer pressure. It's it's more of an indirect peer pressure. It's when people are trying to please others or fit in. You know, you have to kind of look at the, the pride side of it and say, okay, if the pride and the, the self-confidence was there, you can make those decisions a little easier. But as youngsters, young people, just they, that's just the way they are. They want to fit in. They want to be cool. They want to be in the in crowd. They don't want to lose the friends that they grew up with, even though some of them do things that, uh, whether it be alcohol, drugs, some, you know, go down the criminal path, stealing, breaking into cars at night, that kind of thing. When they're young, it's very difficult to overcome that. It's, it's like I said, 
I think if we can get to the, the schools and get these kids to understand that peer pressure is actually non-existent when you have that self-confidence and pride. You have to set your goals and you have to follow those goals. And, and a lot of times people hit on the uh, decision-making. Um, well, that was, a, that was a impossible decision or a tough decision. I don't think it is. There's Decision-making process is actually a simple process. Are we going to make a wrong decision? Absolutely. But if we look at what's in front of us, assess it, what's going on, and evaluate the possible outcomes and compare that to what your life goals are, short and long term, should be a pretty easy decision to make. Uh, sometimes that just gets lost in, in the moment when there's the peer pressure from a group setting. I, for one, I don't drink. I don't smoke uh, marijuana. I smoke cigarettes uh, and I drink a lot of coffee. Uh, people always teasing me because I have a coffee cup in my hand all the time. Um, <laughs> you know, real quick, you when you talk about you saw people in your family who struggled with addiction and you knew that you didn't want that for yourself. That's actually something that's really encouraging for me to hear because it's hard for me to believe. Not that I find doubt what you have to say whatsoever. But I have a 12-year-old son, and as a worried, cynical parent, I wonder, is there anything that I can do that will deter him from making the mistakes I've made, or is he doomed to follow in my footsteps regardless of what he sees in my life? I like to think we've had a super open dialogue from very young age that he will learn from my mistakes. He won't have to make them. He'll see a better way that hopefully we can reach out to the community, talk to kids, and and help them to see a better way and encourage them as well. So it's amazing to hear you say that because I desperately want to believe that's possible. And it is. Um, I think that goes back to the, the pride. Uh, when you set those goals, I had a cousin who was 11 months younger than me. He overdosed uh, on heroin was three years ago. We both seen the same exact thing when we were growing up. We dealt with the peer pressure. My alcoholic uncle would call me in his bedroom and say, hey, here's a can of Budweiser, down it. I was 12 years old. Never happened. Never touched it. You've never drank? Nope. Never had well, No, I, I never at the time. Okay. Of course, I, you know, I've had drinks. You did. Yeah. Um, but I never cracked under the peer pressure. And it was to the point where I... It became a challenge to me to defeat that peer pressure. I watched it. I watched it play out. I watched the stupid things that happened to him, uh, being arrested for drunk driving. Going, uh, the store was uh, honestly the corner store one was the killer for me because I knew I was not going to be that guy to have my brain fried at that early age. He was thirty something years old, and and couldn't remember for a quarter mile if he was supposed to bring bread, milk, or whatever. But yeah, peer pressure is, is is tough. And I think when you talk about that open dialogue with your son, I think that's going to... I didn't have somebody that was talking to me and saying, okay, Uncle Stewie uh, shouldn't be offering you that beer and good for you. I didn't have that. But I did have that bullheaded... And, and, and that's what I blame and are attributed to. I was just bullheaded. 
I knew that's not that's not what I wanted. And I think with that open dialogue and your son knows a lot about what you went through, the mistakes you made throughout your path, sees you now and what a, what a challenge it is to get back on your feet and get situated. Like we say in recovery, it is a lot, it's a lot harder to get sober than stay sober. You know, right. once you get to that, you start reaching those milestones of 30 days, 90 days, what have you, and give your chance, your brain a chance to to heal, rewire itself, to just change, you, you have a shot. But it's so hard. It's so hard to get to that point where you, you bottom out and you're ready to take on that challenge. So, of course, the, the best possible scenario is to prevent or just to help people choose not to begin to go down that road in the first place. Don't pick up that first drink is, is what we tell ourselves. Don't. Don't, you know, it's uh, one is too many is a, a thousand is never enough is another popular saying. So one pill might not sound like much to you, but once I take that first pill, I'll never be able to satisfy that thirst. So, yeah. And I, and when you say that, that time, that initial time to get your brain re- rewired, we see that in the jail a lot. Uh, people come in, they're. They've been running the streets for months, maybe years, and they finally get uh, to the point where the law catches up with them. They do something stupid, whatever the case may be, they end up in, uh, in jail. And after like two weeks, they're totally different people. And the reason being is that's the first time that they've been able to think clearly in in ages. It takes a while for the brain to kind of recalculate itself and refocus and actually be able to think outside that tunnel vision. And then then it's like, wow, I just stole from my mom. Yeah. I lied to my dad. And then these are the same people that you're reaching out to on a $15 an hour phone call. And then you wonder, why in the world are they picking up? Or why are they even mm-hmm. not picking up? Right. And, and how was that with you as far as with your parents? I mean, they watched you go through this whole thing. My parents were incredibly supportive. I'm forever grateful to them for not giving up on me. I feel, I feel forever grateful that my parents didn't give up on me. Had they done so, I don't think I would be here today. I never had to deal with homelessness. They probably should have denied me a place in their home, but they never did. I know there's tough love. The importance of boundaries is not lost on me. I think there are cases where people do need to remove themselves from toxic situations. But in my particular case, uh, my dad in particular never gave up on me. Not to say my mom gave up on me. They never gave up on me. But my dad went above and beyond to, to be there for me when he didn't have to be. He uh, He's amazing. My parents are amazing. They've been married almost 50 years. I couldn't have more loving parents. The the one thing I would say, though, and you talked about how you didn't have somebody in your life telling you not to go drink that beer with your uncle or, or to have that guidance, and it was really your just kind of bullheadedness and own observations that got you through. My parents didn't have an open dialogue with me either. I think they were just kind of hoping and wishing and praying uh, things like that away. I think they were in denial for a very long time. But by the time they were really able to accept 
and understand what was going on with me. Just the monster was already out of control. So there was no, there's no dialogue left to have that was going to help me steer clear of it. But yeah, my parents, my parents were fantastic. Everyone, my, my brothers, I, I've, I've actually been really blessed with, with the way people have st- stuck by me. Uh, and I put a lot of people through a lot of hell. Yeah, and that's that coming back from that, it, it takes, takes time to, to heal and gain that trust. It's, it's a long haul. You really didn't get there overnight. No. So looking and at And I'm that, not cured. You know what I mean? I'm not there yet. It's still a, a long battle. Absolutely. Every, every day, I'm sure you have to deal with it. Yeah, and I and I'm doing okay, but I just yeah. I don't want anybody to think that I'm of the opinion that I've made it. And funny enough, this afternoon I sent my mom a text. I said to her, "You ever think to yourself, holy shit, I can't believe Tim is clean?" Because sometimes I think that. And she texted back to me to say, "You should believe it because you're doing it. A great way to live is clean." And she put a bunch of hearts and other happy emojis at the end of it. But, yeah, it takes time. It takes time. And sometimes now, uh, I'm amazed. Like, I'm amazed by how much weight has been lifted off my shoulders just by trying to do the right thing at the very least. And you know when you sent that text that she could believe it and would believe it. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and oftentimes that's, uh, that's used to mask things. Yep, uh, I'm clean, I'm doing well, I'm in therapy, I'm doing this and doing that. And and blah, blah, mom blah, blah, and dad blah, blah, are like, well, wait a minute. Yeah, they know. Yeah. So and and that's got to be a huge, you know, proud moment for you. It is, yeah. and I think it's a it's is for them too because I think you know there is a sense of we got through this together. One thing that's a dynamic that blows me away is when you are lying about your sobriety, and then it dawns on you that said person, be it your mom, your dad, your spouse, knows you are lying about your sobriety. And then shortly after that, you realize that they know you know. (laughs) They know that you're full of shit. Right. So it's like, when are we really going to talk? When's the actual conversation going to happen? And and that's not going to happen until someone is detoxed and had some time. Uh, And I hate to say this. But just from my perspective, and I say this all the time, it's it's not, I'm not saying it's the only route, but I see it being so beneficial, especially nowadays when someone is addicted to any substance, whether it be alcohol, drugs, that they end up in, in incarcerated. It's a blessing in disguise. That's where you don't have the peer pressure. Um, now, you know, there are some jails where there's drugs and they make their alcohol and whatnot, but if you get into... Uh, you know, if you land in a decent facility, that stuff's not there. That enables the person to, you know, that's another word we need to hit on is enable. <laughs> um, but There's that, a lot to get to. We'll get yeah. Uh, but that, that lets the, the brain refocus. Uh, you get the, the stuff out of your system. You can start rebuilding those relationships by like, I, you know, by starting, hey, I know you don't trust me. Uh, and there's a good reason for that but I'm going to do it this time. That's something they probably heard three, four, maybe a hundred times yeah. before that. Right. So it's you have to understand. You can't just expect them to be like, yep, okay, he's got it this time. 
there's always that doubt. Incarceration is one of those issues where I think we we can have a good discussion about because we definitely would be coming from different angles on that. Because for me, right, a well, night in jail, I I hate it. Like well, I feel like, did you have? Do you carry a taser or? Yeah. We have tasers. Yes. Did but, you have to be tased? Yeah, we don't have to be, but you voluntarily do. It. I feel like judges should do a weekend in jail before they start dispensing that shit like candy. Like jail sucks, right? So I guess my question to you is: I, I don't dispute. That getting someone off the streets and behind bars can be a, a blessing in certain lives. But where, when is like enough enough? What's like a proper amount of time to be incarcerated? And when does it like cross the line to where this is detrimental Excessive. to someone to be locked up but, for so long? Well, here's my, my I guess we're going to have this conversation. So my, my perspective is if it's, I kind of touched on it before, anything like addiction related, I strongly believe. 90 days and the reason behind that is i think jails are moving into that the whole system is moving into a new direction when i first hired in almost 17 years ago we had a few classes a little ged mm-hmm. uh, that type of thing but it was nothing that that transpired outside of the jail so you probably could have never imagined back then no but it would be like Right, and it's changed. I mean, it's it's so drastic that our our jail is not even set up for that anymore. It's it, the majority of the people we get in are either it's a drug issue or a mental health issue or both. The county jail houses how many inmates at max? Uh, we're at like one twenty six max. Okay, so how many of them are typically in there for drug related charges? Drug related. Well, it depends if they're going to admit it or not. And so we, if they're, if they have previous charges uh, that are drug related, and we can kind of guess at a at a percentage. But believe it or not, a lot of them uh, think they end up in jail on some freak incident. Uh, well, and they they may or may not be using, but we always get the well. I only use once a year. And I guess some people should play the lottery. When you look at like, okay, home invasion, do you, mm-hmm. are you, do you think yourself, okay, they only did this because they wanted money for drugs. Is there any other reason people break into homes? Well, nowadays, I think back in the day, that was the main reason that you would automatically assume someone's breaking in to steal some stuff to pawn it off. And right. But the system is, is, is kind of progressed to the point where I would assume any type of financial fraud, uh, whether it be stealing a credit card or, or whatever, that type of thing is going to be more related to drug use. Right. Uh, and, and so would I. Yeah. Stealing from Walmart, that type of stuff, uh, that's usually going to be related to drug use. Sure. That's Those are things they can jump on Facebook, throw in a marketplace, make a quick buck, or run it down the street and trade it. And trade it. Exactly. So back in the day, yeah, sure, that's that was the assumption for sure. Nowadays, like I said, if they some are fortunate enough to make it uh, quite a long ways before they're actually caught up in in the legal system. That would be me. Yeah, I I had a couple of retail frauds in my mid thirties because I would I just ripped off every big box retailer you could find, take electronics, DVDs, all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't until I was thirty nine years old where I was caught with a possession charge and any kind of meaningful charge whatsoever. It was a felony possession charge, mm-hmm. and we can get into how I'm in drug court and how I'm dealing with that. Now, at some point, 
and is ultimately why we met. But yeah, I made it a long way, and sometimes I wish, like, why couldn't I have gotten popped with this sooner? Because although I didn't do the ninety days in jail, and I do think that's a reasonable amount of time. Mm-hmm. It has changed my life for the better. Just being arrested for it and going through this process and not having the accountability of drug testing and mandatory meetings and, mm-hmm. and all those sorts of things made a huge difference. It's given me the opportunity to begin to change and grow. So I do definitely see the benefits of the criminal justice system when uh, applied. Right, but you have to be fortunate enough to have uh, a local system in place like drug court we have that Vivitrol program where it's not just lock them up, wait 90 days, and kick them out the door. Right. Um, everything's transitioned uh, in in our facility, at least. When did that change start happening? When did you begin to Probably work more cohesively with other... Four or five years ago. Okay. Um, it, it It's difficult because everything costs money. Right. So the best way to do that is networking. Uh, we network very well with uh, the health department, our community mental health, uh, local clinic, uh, Hamilton, uh, and obviously with our court system. But you brought up a valid point. You have that structure, that accountability. When someone voluntarily says, without being incarcerated or being in trouble with the law, I'm going to rehab because they were caught by family, friends, whatever the case may be. I am a strong believer if they are not detoxed for quite a while, the, the chance of relapse is very, very high. The chance of them taking off from therapy is very high. Or the chance of this just jumping through the hoops, being released and say, I'm good, right. and then right back at it in a short period of time. The The system has changed to where, believe it or not, is when I hired in, if you said, hey, who wants to go to GED class? Nobody would want to go because it was those in orange against those in brown. Uh, and we've, we've transitioned that mentality to, hey, we don't want you back here. You know, it used to be like, oh, job security when, uh, you know, they keep coming back. Uh, and that's not the when mentality. When you say we, who are you speaking on behalf of? That's, that's a good question because what it takes to have a functioning, uh, well-thought-out, almost, I don't want to say fail-proof, but kind of hold your hand type network where you're account you're held accountable after you leave the back door of the jail uh, it takes a majority of the buy-in and that, and that starts from the top all the way down to the the new people uh, that we hire we can't hire people saying hey uh, what do you think about people who are addicted to heroin and they're like ah oh, they're shit bags and there's no you know whatever it's their own fault do you hear that much uh not no not as much as you used to. I'm yeah, sure. it used to be terrible, and and that's part of that whole transition. I mean, if you look at it, even you look at the presidential race coming up, the election can bet that recovery and addiction, and, and it's going to be a huge topic. So I think from that perspective, from the jails on outwards, it's it's more commonly spoken of. It's not a taboo thing. Where, like I said, the orange was against the brown. And Does your average sheriff's dep- deputy give a shit about the inmates in there? Did, did, like, what what compels one? Because there has to be these boundaries, right? It, it is a very rigid line between orange and brown, even if 
even if that relationship is improving over time. But Absolutely. Does, does your average sheriff's deputy, you think, really hope that these individuals won't? Like, are they really working toward improving recidivism rates and doing their part, do you think? Or do they really care? Is it just a punch in or punch out? Well, it depends on how you look at it. Uh, a Let's take a staff of 30 people. You're going to have uh, six command staff. You're going to have uh, someone that oversees these 30 people, which would be your, your jail administrator. Uh, the jail administrator will dictate the direction mm-hmm. of these classes and the mentality. So they're super important yeah. and influential. Right. That obviously is an art in itself on how that jail administrator gets that mentality to spread throughout. Uh, in the best way is ownership. You let you pass on the responsibilities, hey, we're setting up this this and this class. How about you take the lead on this and get it set up? Okay, there's an automatic ownership and pride thing in this. They want people to succeed. And it does take, uh, I'm not going to lie, it takes all kinds to make the correctional system work. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, yeah. And the different personalities that you're dealing with, for the most part, they are alpha personalities. Mm-hmm. So with that being said... You're and I know it's not an easy job. No. I'm, I'm just... It, it's not. You curious. see a lot of terrible things. You you read a lot of terrible things. You know, it day to day, you have no idea what's going to happen yeah. when you walk in that building. So sure. any anytime, and I can, I can probably say this for 90% of, I'll go 99%, of the deputies that I personally know would have a good feeling to see someone succeed. Okay. And Um, that's encouraging. Yeah. And I don't know, I guess you, like you say, you can really just speak for the county. Well, I know quite a few in other counties. Uh, I guess that would make sense. Yeah. And, and like I said, the mentalities change our classes and and everything that we've formed in the way of addiction, you know, the, the Vivitrol program, for example, that took over a year of coordinating. Which is a great program that I personally benefit greatly from. Right. And but you went outside of that program. Is that I did. I didn't I wasn't introduced to it by right. you guys actually my family doctor mm-hmm. is and that makes me a bit of an anomaly in this area because most people go to Hamilton Clinic around here. Correct. Um, I actually drive forty minutes away because my I just am so comfortable and happy with my family doctor. And he was pushing that on me for a couple years himself, saying you need to get off the Spox and get on the Vivitrol. Mm-hmm. He didn't make my decisions for me or force me to do it. But he, the fact that he was encouraging it, me to do it before I realized personally how important it was to do it just only validated my, my belief in him and my belief in his, uh, just his wisdom and, and uh, guidance. So, But yeah, it's awesome, man. Vivitrol's awesome. Yeah, and, and while we're on that top of... of uh medicated assisted treatment i think vivitrol is kind of overlooked only by those that truly don't want recovery Uh, the reason i say that is i feel from a jail perspective uh, you see i I, we talked about it before where they're in jail they're they're detoxed their head straight that is the golden opportunity for vivitrol I think if someone leaves yeah. that scenario and wanting to go on uh, back on Suboxone or whatever, that's an excuse for me. Sure. Um, unless there's some sort of uh, 
medical reason why they can't participate in Vivitrol, which is very rare. Uh, I don't believe that the will is truly there if they're going to deny that opportunity because it's tied in with therapy. It's tied in with, you know, getting your general health check. They, they set you up on uh, with health insurance. They help you with job searching, uh, housing. Uh, it's it's kind of, they, they, I mean, they, we hate to say it, but, yeah, we are holding holding their hand as they walk out the back door of the jail, whereas before, 10 years ago, it was open the back door on their out date. And guess Come who? Get, yeah, guess See you in a little while. Right. Guess who? <laughs> guess who rolled up to pick them up? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. the dealers. I have no doubt. For those who don't know, and I, I want to throw this out there, Vivitrol. Okay, so Suboxone's a narcotic, and while I get the feeling that it's kind of your, I believe in the proper context, you'd be happy to shit all over Suboxone and Methadone. I think there are a lot of people. Who I, you know, I've heard it referred to as diet heroin, and I think that's fair. I also think it has its place, and I, I am a proponent of harm reduction. That said, Vivitrol is not a narcotic. Every 28 days when I see my doctor, uh, actually his, his assistant, I don't know if it's a nurse or nurse's aide, gives me a shot in the ass. And for a few days, it feels like there's a golf ball there. It's a thick substance. <laughs> yeah, it's like a candle they shoot in there. It's right? the, the widest needle gauge I think they have. And, um, but it's just a little prick. It's, it's just minor discomfort for a couple of days and it's worth it. Besides, um, preventing my brain from being flooded with the endorphins that Oxycontin, Vicodin, heroin, these other opiates would provide. It also, more importantly, um, it just frees me of the, the desire in the first place, the cravings. And it does it and without being a narcotic. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's not a narcotic, and yet it satiates my desire to use narcotics. And that's got to be a, an awesome feeling in itself. It's awesome. Yeah. It's been like, because I, when I say this to people who don't have experience with addiction, they can relate, they can usually relate on some level, or not relate so much as just appreciate, like, they'll be like, that's really cool that you're relieved of that burden. I'm really glad to hear that. That's awesome. I know you've had your struggles, and, and to hear you express how free you feel they're happy for me but they still just don't get it it's like you know when you it's just this been this albatross this anchor that's held me down for so long to finally not have that ball and chain around my ankle and it's not just vivitrol but vivitrol does play a huge role in that it's just amazing to me to wake up in the morning and to not think about using to yep. not be dope sick, to not think of who I'm going to screw over so that I can get high, and to just be a good employee and a good father, and not even really be thinking about these, like I'm trying to be a good, I'm just doing the right thing. Right, right. and I always say, Vivitrol is not the answer in itself, but it is the key to the toolbox. The toolbox has always been there, Yeah. in the way, that of, makes a lot of, sense. In a way of therapy, um, even like participating in, in local groups that is like you're doing. Yeah. That Vivitrol frees up the mind from that, that everyday pressure. Now, it doesn't totally get rid of it, but it reduces it drastically to where, you, like you said, you're not every day waking up, where am I going to get this? How am I going to get it? But that, that toolbox has always been there. And Vivitrol simply allows you to concentrate more on those tools that will get you further on down the road. Now, I always like to say, if a drug has a street value, run like hell. 
Uh, and you you mentioned it, Vivitrol has zero street. I mean, you yeah. couldn't go out on the street and sell Vivitrol. No. It'd I mean, be like, uh, what's what's the uh, thing everybody's giving away for overdose? Um, Narcan. Yeah. It'd yeah. be like trying to sell Narcan. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to. Right. But it's out there. Right. And it's useful. Yep. And I have one in my backpack in case somebody here or um, somebody I work with or just somebody in my life overdoses. I have a couple of them and I'm happy to have them. But yeah, I can sell it. Right. Yeah, and that's and that's what I always point out. And we in the in the jail we do a Vivitrol orientation every Friday, and that's the first thing I say is raise your hand if you did something stupid to be here. And believe it or not, there's always one person that won't raise their hand, like it's someone else's fault. Yeah, they uh, yeah. Well, that person, I'll I'll ask them to stand up, go over to the door, and they look at me kind of funny, but they do it. And they say, turn the knob. They turn the knob and I say, okay, now, if you truly feel that you didn't do anything stupid to get in here, I said, please exit the door. If you rethink it and can realize that, yes, you had something to do with it, have a seat. Because you can't, you can't go honestly on the road to recover. You can't go into rehab. You can't go into any therapy. You can't even talk about it. If you truly do not acknowledge it, and you got to be honest with yourself, you have to say, "I have a problem." Right, and, and it's I'll, like the first step of the twelve steps. Right, and powerlessness over and your addiction. Funny you bring the twelve steps up. Right, I am not a religious guy by any means. Um, my office happens to be right next; it's attached to the program room. Uh, we have a group there called uh, uh, Alcoholics for Christ. So. I have to pass through there and occasionally I catch kind of what they're talking about and whatnot. And I use that opportunity to kind of advertise a Vivitrol orientation, you know, and I'll give a quick little speech or what. Well, one time I got talking and I talk a lot. I kind of butted in their meeting, but they were cool with it. So I started talking and then the guy says to me, he says, you know what? Basically what you just said is in the 12 steps. And I'm like, well, give me that damn thing. I've never read it. And so he gave me a pamphlet, and and I, I made a joke. I said, I'm not a religious guy, so, you know, don't even think about it. But no, he's like, I took the pamphlet, and I, I read it when I got home, and I'm like, holy shit. So it's really not a religious thing. Uh, it's more of a common sense thing. Sure. Um, I'm the last one to take that route. But, yeah, if you can't be honest with yourself and own it, you're not gonna. You're not gonna make that first step. Uh, that's that's for sure. Because at that point, you're just fooling yourself, and you think you're fooling everybody else, but not the case. Sometimes you're only fooling yourself. Yes. You've been listening to the Law and Disorder podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and Google Play to get new episodes. Please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at ladpodcast.com. Recovery is possible.